Hi, I'm Marilee Albert, the founder of One Village Green, a mental health nonprofit. And you are listening to Wake Up. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last several years, you've seen something somewhere about the growing mental health crisis in our country, especially amongst our youth. Something is wrong. But what is causing this crisis? We will examine the problem and find solutions to improve our collective mental health. So let's put our heads together and let's find a way to a better future. I've got the moms here for part two, and we're talking about the youth mental health crisis and what we can do about it. I've got a guest here, one of the moms who is also a film producer, just recently produced a, and still doing it actually, she's not finished, a series of shorts about the youth mental health crisis. Would you like to start by telling us what's your biggest takeaway from it? And then we're going to all talk about it. Start with you. What's your biggest takeaway from these shorts? My, um, from exploring. So the the topic is on the youth mental health crisis and the system issues that are contributing to this epidemic. And I think my biggest takeaway is how we as a culture have given responsibility over to systems to raise, nurture, and grow our kids. And the onus is on systems that only think of kids and humans as a number and a statistic and not as an individual. So our kids are growing up being treated as a widget and not as an individual with a heart and a soul and a search for identity and purpose and meaning because systems aren't structured that way. But communities can be, parents can be. And um, a critical thing that I think we're lacking as parents, because I'll, I'll take onus, is like not listening to what our kids are saying. And they're telling us how they feel. They're telling us by their actions, by their depression, by their anxiety and their isolation. And we're not listening. We're saying, get good grades. We're letting them use their social media pages and using that as a babysitter, as opposed to sitting down and taking the time as a family to nurture our family relations, to nurture community relations. And it's on us as parents to do it. It's They look to us and we're all too busy on our own social media, building our own careers, dealing with our own anxieties to really look at kids that are looking to us to lead them. Yeah. And I also think we're not looking out for other people's kids enough. Honestly, not other kids. I mean, no. when we grew up, your neighbor knew what you were up to and they would call your parents Yeah, or they would say, oh, I saw so-and-so. They're over at so-and-so's house. Like we're living in this anonymous com like culture. It's also a competitive. Really, yes, it's competitive without purpose or meaning. Right. And, and you know, one of the things that really struck me the most in the process of raising my kids is just how much parents would circle wagons when there was a kid who was off or problematic to them. Um, and there wasn't a lot of empathy or outreach. It was more like, oh my gosh, it's catching. I better stay away from it. I want to ask you a question about your documentary, and then I hope S and C will weigh in and D. Really quickly, the question is this. You guys talked a lot about in the documentary about the problems of the meds, but what you didn't bring up was this little girl had major, major panic attacks, and that's why they put her on the meds. So the series, the working title is called Meaning and Madness, um, and it's influenced by Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl. Um, and we, through the 
course of the series, explore system issues that are contributing to the mental health crisis. So we did one on the educational system, one on the healthcare system and the increased use of SSRIs with no end in sight. And the third one is the foster care system. And in all of these, what is really interesting is how they all feed each other and systems feed each other. We really have to look back to the environment that we're raising our kids in. And as opposed to working towards the very quick fix, because it's really uncomfortable to see your kid in pain or unhappy or struggling, that we don't want them to feel that for a minute. And that's a natural thing, even though they should struggle, they should feel pain because it builds resilience, that builds strength of self and character. And all of those things are incredibly important. But we, as parents in this communities, we don't want to see that. And so we want to fix it right away. And specifically with Luna, which is the film on the medical industry, healthcare system. Right, which is the one I just addressed. When yeah. you just addressed, it's called Luna. And it, um, it explores one family's journey through the pharmaceutical drug industry and healthcare system. But Luna in particular was struggling as an eight-year-old. Her parents had gotten divorced. She was immediately thrust into a new world where they were moving from home to home, sleeping on floors and mattresses. And she had an extraordinary sense of um, insecurity and unknowing of where her next bed was going to be and where her parents were going to be and the push and pull between what is very common in divorce settings. And she started to be really anxious and have separation anxiety and she wouldn't stay at school and she felt terror and angst and loneliness and isolation and the parents brought her to the psychiatrist and he immediately prescribed her with anti-anxiety medication but remember you guys did say she had panic attacks you're eight years old yeah your next bed is going to be You've been pulled out of a nuclear environment that has felt safe and secure and comforting and nurturing to the unknown. And again, there are moments, of course, where you you look at a kid and they're struggling. And one of the solutions could be, well, let's medicate to get over this hump right away and then assess. But what happens is with most kids is you get put on medication and there's no end in sight. So she's 15 now. She's on anti-anxiety, anti-depression, and now Adderall because her brother was diagnosed with ADHD. So therefore, she must have ADHD. And she's on a cocktail of meds. And she sees no end in sight. She's lost touch with who she was as that eight-year-old girl and the struggle to get back there and really a lack of identity. Like, who is she? She doesn't She doesn't know who she is and she's afraid to discover who that person was before she went on the medication. And so that's really our exploration into how we look at an environment and maybe the changing of the environment before putting the Band-Aid of meds on it and just hoping for them to cure. And she's 15 and nothing has changed. She's actually more anxious, more depressed, lacks identity. Is the environment still chaotic? I think environments are chaotic. But I mean, like the Hers. divorce, like is well, the, they're, they, uh, the mother, the mother's remarried or recently got remarried. The father has a girlfriend. She moves from home. You know, she's at his house and then at her house. And and I think they try to co-parent successfully, but I'm sure there's still 
without knowing really the inner dynamic of the family outside of what we were able to film. We could all assume there's probably still conflict in terms of the medication as one. The father very much does not want her to be on medication. The mother very much believes she should still be. And, you know, as parents, it's nuanced. It's not so black and white. It's not so easy to say it should be or it shouldn't be. But I think exploring, and we had an amazing doctor who covers seven or eight different hospitals in Orange County, specifically in mental health. See, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I think that children need the support of other children also. So before throwing medication at the problem, if they know that they're not alone, I just wonder if there's, you know, if they're missing steps in the process. Resilience is certainly something that we don't necessarily teach our kids. And I think if they feel empowered, children, if they feel empowered themselves, and that comes from us or a great teacher or a mentor somewhere, a clergy, whomever can speak to that student. I think therein lies the problem somehow. There's a disconnect with the parents. So the parent can't necessarily do it for whatever reason, and it's not even a judgment. But out in the world, if there's just that one person or a community of their own kids, and we as parents don't direct them like that. We don't manage necessarily the problem. We go right to shrinks because we think that's the answer. We go to medication because we were brought up that way, maybe. If there was another playbook for this, could that help? I'm sure there's one out there, but we're looking for it. Or you're going to set the standard for it because that's what we're searching for here, right? I think it comes back to the schools in a, in a way. And that's because, as you said, when we were young, no one was diagnosed with ADHD, right? Somebody was just a troublemaker. We've now swung the entire other way. And any child that doesn't want to sit still in kindergarten and listen to, you know, an hour long math lecture has ADHD. I think the expectations (laughs) in the schools are that children are these perfectly little, well-behaved beings. And I know genderizing is not not okay anymore, but from my observations, generally speaking, girls are better able to just sit and listen at very young ages. Just sit and listen and please. They're people pleasers. They want to please the teacher. And of course, there's exceptions. I'm, I'm not just based on observation. Whereas boys want to run around and be on the playground and engage and be silly. And they're still expected to just sit there and listen to a teacher. And I think it's gotten to a point where it's acceptable for a teacher to say, there's a problem with your child and you need to put your child on medication because I'm having trouble teaching them. And you know what? That's why we wound up in private school. And that's not an option for most of America. My kids in preschool I saw some very troubling things with the, what the teachers were expecting of the students and how they were handling it and making the kids feel ashamed when they couldn't sit still for a story that they were bored out of their mind of, or because they're going over the C says C for the 14th time that week. And so when I toured my local public school, which is an excellent, excellent school, I got very concerned because I knew that one of my children was going to be doing backflips in the back of the classroom because they were just going to be bored out of their mind and not engaged and they'd be in trouble. And I didn't want my five-year-old starting off their real school career, being in trouble with the teacher, being made to feel bad about themselves. So we went to a private school that focused on teaching kids academically where they are, right? So the kids aren't over-challenged and tuning out. They're not under-challenged and getting bored. And that was great for a while, but that is not an option 
it was a very expensive school. Right. And that's not an option for most people. No. So what are we going to do as a country? Like, when are we going to wake up and realize that the way we're teaching our kids in school doesn't work anymore? And by the way, our school system, our kids are coming out. They cannot compete with international kids that have much stronger education. So they're not necessarily getting educated for the 21st century. And they're not being educated in a way that is effective unless you can pay exorbitant amounts to give a specialized education. I want to go back to this kindergarten issue again with DS. You guys start because we're all in agreement that all of us here have put our kids in private school. But as S pointed out, that's out of reach for most people. Let's design an elementary school right now that addresses some of this stuff, because I have one of my kids just does not like school. Well, I think one of the major, major, major problems in the yeah. school system is we don't pay teachers anything. The teachers that are amazing do it from the bottom of their heart and with love, and we don't pay them anything. And they spend eight hours a day with our children, and we're not willing to compensate them. And I think that's one of the biggest problems. I'm now an empty nester. I happen to love math. And I said, I'm going to teach math now that I have the time to do it. Well, you know what? I have zero desire to go be in a school system with all of the bureaucracy that surrounds that. So I'm not going to do it. And for me, it's not about the money. It's about the nightmare of being in a school system. That to me, until we make it an environment where teachers have the freedom to teach and where we recognize the hard work that they do and pay them accordingly, like that's step one for me. I agree. I I completely agree. My, my brother teaches high school in a public school and he is so hemmed in. He does AP physics and earth science. So he has like the kids that kind of struggle with science and the kids that excel at science. And he said, if I didn't have to teach to the test that they have to take, I could be outside building rockets, doing so much more interesting things that would really teach them about physics and earth science. But um, yeah, we're, we're kind of hemmed in now. I, I, I don't know the answer. I know a lot of really bright people are trying to have been trying to address this. I mean, that's right. TED Talks are technology, mm-hmm. education, and design. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of thinking and time has gone into it. And I think maybe it's a constant pressure and questioning and demanding more for our kids that slowly over time, like water over a stone, we can make changes because it is a very entrenched system. I was wondering for M, did your kid, knowing that he was dancing and tapping, and did you find a school for him that was tolerable for him that felt okay? <laughs> he's, he's in the background. He's, nope. Oh. Nope. I, I, he could speak on this way more articulately than I can, but I do think that that type of pressure from the school, I mean, you know, they did all of the techniques. Put him in a rocking chair. In the front of the classroom, squeeze a ball, the gold star, if you were able to sit still for the blah, blah, like all these things. I'm like, how horrible that as a kid, that must have felt like to be pulled out from the group with this. It's like a dunce cap or something. Yeah, like this oh, dunce no. cap because the other kids were medicated so they could toe the line. And, you know, it's I think it's interesting because my daughter and, you know, this is all about looking at who the individual is, the individual in your house, because we can't expect to go as like the uh, warrior and change the school system. It's going to be impossible. Like I'm going to get S on that. 
she's lucky enough that you have like the financial means to put your kid in that progressive school but that's one very tiny portion of our society that can do that. Well, I want to break in on this issue because this is a question I want for all of you. We have weird contradictions now. S brought up a good point. We're not competing globally, supposedly. I didn't even understand why. I'm mystified by it. But we also have an educational system, as Dee pointed out, that's teaching to the test. It's very constraining. How do we address both those issues all at once? S likes math. She's good at math and she's good at teaching kids math. You know what you need to do, S, is figure out how to teach those kids who are not good at math. The school that most of us met through, it was very traditional, but they thought they were pretty cool because they were doing Singapore math. It didn't make any difference with my kid. He hated it anyway. What are your thoughts on this weird contradiction of school teaches to the test, if you could fix it. I would like to know math. why I'm learning something. I think people struggle with math. I hated math. And I now I'm in a business where all I look are at budgets and forecasting and box office. And like, I, I have to build cost reports and I have to build and I hate every second of it, but it's something I have to do. But I understand that there's a means to an end there. So I understand the purpose of the problem that I'm working on. And I think math is just like learn one plus one equals two and or a fraction is a fraction, but how do you utilize the knowledge of this in real world practical application? And if there was more practical application that coincided with what you're learning, so kids are like, oh, I understand why I'm learning this and how I can use it in mixing paints in my art class or cooking at home and understanding the fractions of the eggs to the oil, to the water, to the flour, and that it like applies to something that they are personally vested in, not just Susie and Johnny in the math book are crossing the street at so many miles per hour. Like how does it it personally apply to your personal individualized passions and interests? Now, again, I go back to like, a school can't do this. They can't look at 800 kids and say, okay, we're going to be student-centered learning. It's impossible. We all know that. So it goes back to you, parent at home. How are you nurturing your kid in their individual passions and taking the responsibility away from a system and taking the responsibility back into your own house? Well, that's complicated because in my in my case, I was always lectured to by the school. I mean, you're not making your kid do the homework. I'm like, but you told us to read Blessings of a B minus and Blessings of a Skinny. They go, yeah, but you need to make your kid do the homework. And I'm like, I hate the homework. I hated homework. I hated it as a kid. I hated it as a parent. But at the same time, we're all trying to prepare our kids for the world. It's very complex, right? But I want to steer it back to just specifically, if you guys could design a world for a five-year-old till he's eight or she is 18, what would you do differently? If you were in charge of the world, if you were queen of the world, there are five women on here, except for Sean in the studio, who's just listening. Design it for me. Give me the the skinny on what you would do. See? I feel like I really worked that angle because I only have one daughter who came out, you know, with a great temperament, ready to take on the world. She was ready. There are options out there. LAUSD may be terrible, but if you want to send your kid to a magnet school because they're great at a computer or a dance program, 
they're out there. It's up to the parent to make those schools the best that they can be. And once they shepherd their child and get who their child is, because their child's not an extension of them as much as we like to think so, then that's a first step. My daughter was fortunate. I figured out the best fit for her education, not socially, but her education. I could take care of the rest of it. But I felt like it was all about me. Like I was the mentor. I was the friend. I made her and I was going to work really hard to make sure that she could explore, play, live up to her full potential in whatever way was good for her. I had to recognize it first. So I took responsibility and everyone on your podcast is like that. Right. We all took responsibility. Because we can be. It becomes socioeconomic again. You know, a working single parent and you've got three kids, you're you knowing even what's going on with your kid is maybe difficult, let alone having time to be involved with the teachers and be involved with homework. And it's a real issue. I agree with everything you said a thousand percent, but I think in today's society, that's hard for most families. Yes, it is. I sent my girl to a swim class. It was a gentleman that would come to the home and you could have seven spoiled brats in the pool learning how to swim and cry. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go into his community, different community than anyone that's on this call. And those were working parents was in their home. And these kids were not privileged. And they were like, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. They were being taught their manners. They had to behave. They knew they had to behave. They knew that they were lucky to be there to take part in a swim class. And that's kind of what may be missing. Maybe we're afraid to teach our children how to behave and then uphold a standard to which they must, you know, ascend. I think that there are ways to do it, but you're right. It starts at home. Wait, is M still here? I wanted to get her take on it, but S makes a good point as well. We need to look at the system because there are many parents who don't have the luxuries we've had of time and even socioeconomic abilities to pay for outside classes, outside sports, private schools, all this kind of stuff. They are relying on the school. That's why I feel like the school is so important in the mental health. Dee, do you want to? Oh, no, I was just saying, like, I don't think any of us are living that world. No, I know. But let's talk about that world. I think that's a very important piece of it. Yeah, I honestly don't know. I agree with S. If we really valued teachers and people who have a passion for education and paid them, we would come up with solutions. I know I'm not that kind of person. I'm not a teacher. I didn't uh, choose to be a teacher. I don't teach a community college course, even after being a professional. It's not who I am. And, you know, I chose to be a parent. So I got to make myself learn how to do these things. And, 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 but I'm not a gifted educator. I actually, don't think, I think that's you'd be I a good teacher. You're no, no, patient. No, no, no. You so know, I, but I don't know the answer. I don't know the, the answer and how to yeah. design the right school and what people should do who are working and stressed and both working 12 hour days and they have to drop off their kid and rely upon the school. So I don't know the answer to that. That's a big societal problem. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, See? At the school in Boston that my daughter attends, they have a new program. And I was talking to the fellow who's a professor of education and she's developed this whole program on social emotional learning that the School of Education and the Tisch School of Civics is developing. It is everything that you are working toward. I think you've sparked a movement. I think the movement is there. It's just that they are now developing the playbooks for us 
they recognize the problem and there are people working on the solutions in higher education that'll help. That's Just interesting so. that civics is a part of that because I yeah, civics very really interesting. The dean was talking about it, social and emotional learning, right? And then civics being part of a community and what Correct. is your duty as a community member and what do you give and that being part of the education of our kids. I mean, to be in a democracy, you have to be aware and read and know issues and politicians and right. participate. And that's an interesting thing to teach a kid. Right. Yeah, it was interesting for the financing of this particular program because the School of Education did not get the grant. Civics gave it to uh, them. Hmm. So I thought that that was interesting. Fun fact. The whole, I think the biggest challenge we face is that the whole model kind of has to be turned on its head because kids are way busier than ever. Okay. When we grew up, I took a dance class. I took it for an hour and a half a week. I took AP classes. I took two in my senior year. That's all my public high school offered. My daughter took dance classes. She took them 20 hours a week. Both my kids had five AP classes in junior and senior year. For them to keep up with their own crazy schedules, and it sounds crazy, but they they were well-balanced and fine in handling it. If they were stressed, I would have pulled back a thousand percent, but it's common for kids to have that kind of crazy life. And that requires some adult to be involved, whether it's just driving the car, having conversations with the dance teacher, managing the schedule of, wait, there's a dance competition, you know, hundred miles away, finals weekend. All those things take active involvement of a parent, right? So our kids are busier and busier and busier. And the, the social media expectations on the children and the techno- all of the technology expectations, everything they are expected to do and handle in their lives is intensified many, many fold from when we were kids. And yet parents on the whole are far less involved than when we were kids because they have to be that way because they have to work. So we're going in two different opposing directions that do not work together. The kids need more and more and the parents are available less and less. I'm glad that some of the greatest minds are addressing this, but I don't see us on a path to reconciling this until something dramatically changes. I think that's a great place to stop. And I really appreciate that. That is a very good point. I did notice something, which is I have a friend who has a beautiful organization in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles called New Directions for Youth, which offers after-school programs for kids that they consider at risk kids that might possibly get caught up in gangs and parents who are immigrants who maybe don't even speak English and, you know, kids that need a little support. But when I look at that, I think, God, I wish they had that for all kids. I wish there were mentors. Socioeconomics does not protect you from mental health issues or academic issues. You know, my husband and I are artists and we've had ups, we've had downs. And the issues that kids face come in all shapes and sizes. And that's why I started this whole process was I want to reach all the kids because kids at every income level and every step of the process are facing these issues. And and it is true as that all of us on this call have had the luxury of time. And that is a huge luxury few parents have. That is why I feel like the schools are so important and valuable on the mental health front. Anyway, we're going to stop with this. Does anyone have any last thoughts? See, I wanted to say D? one thing. I mm-hmm. wanted to thank Marilee for getting us all together. And I think that those of us on here 
are here because she's reached out to us as friends, as community members, and really to our kids and really cared about our kids. And I really appreciate that. Actually, the reason why you guys specifically are on here is you guys have done so for me as well. And and it's meant a huge amount to me. And you all know who you are. And I'm going to leave us all with this thought, what we've all brought up. If every one parent reached out to one other parent or one other kid, just one, and everybody on here has, because I know you all have, just one person who might be struggling. Because frankly, your kid might not be struggling today, but he may be struggling tomorrow or she. So don't kid yourself. You save one life, you save the world. You save one, you save them all. Anyway, I want to thank you all for taking the time out of your busy days. Anybody else have a one last thought? Thanks for inviting me into the conversation. Also, thank you for doing a grassroots effort to make a change. Because if it doesn't start with us, and especially you who wrangled all of us, then it dies. It doesn't go anywhere. Thanks, guys.